0: One of the most influential authors and teachers in my spiritual development was the late Dallas Willard. He was a philosophy professor by trade, but he's best known in Christian circles for his works on discipleship. That is the process of becoming more and more whole as we follow Jesus. Willard believed that the reason that the church in the Western world seems largely anemic it's because we've bought into the lie that christianity is a movement of trying we hear sermons hopefully not from me that encourage us to try these 10 steps to a better life try these activities these three things will make you a better christian try and do exactly what jesus says try and follow the 10 commandments to the t and inevitably what happens is we try we don't get very far and then we throw our hands up and say, this is impossible. But Willard points out that the Jesus way was never one of trying to follow exactly everything that Jesus taught. It's about following Jesus. It was never a religion to try and be better. It's a relationship with Jesus who is the best. And what struck me with Willard is this line in his writing that he says, the life of a disciple is not about mere trying." it is about training. It's not about trying, it's about training. It makes so much sense when you consider other areas of life. Let's see, we've got Christy and Emma, and is Elizabeth Holland in the room here? She may have gone downstairs to take a little one. They're training right now for Seussical the Musical. How many rehearsals a week are you guys doing? Four rehearsals, five rehearsals a week. Um, to do this musical. Now, rehearsals are probably fun sometimes, right? There's a community aspect, but the point of rehearsal isn't rehearsal. The point is to learn your lines and sing your songs and to do it together and not the right cues so that the performance is awesome. The, The goal of rehearsals is the performance. Training isn't the goal. The performance is the goal. So if we transfer that idea of training to accomplish a goal, and we apply that to the Christian life, then it would be important, right, for us to know what the goal is. Too often Christians make life about the training. Like, you should be in a Bible study. Well, that might help you to get to the goal, but if you think that the goal of Christian life is to be in a Bible study, (laughs) that's boring. If you think that the goal of the Christian life is to fast a lot, Or to do silence and solitude X amount of times a week. That is not the goal of the Christian life. That is a training exercise to get us to the goal. The goal is something like this. I just kind of made this up based on scripture and creeds and stuff. (laughs) To be fully alive. To be fully human as God created us. After all, to be fully human is to thrive as an image bearer of God. That's how he made us. When we're fully alive in Christ, we give glory to God, just out of the function of being alive in Christ. And we're a blessing to our neighbors. We're good stewards to the world, and we are fulfilled. That's the goal. Doesn't that sound great? Wouldn't you love to be fulfilled, to know you're deeply loved by God, so much so that your insecurities are stripped away, and you could be truly you and bless others without hang-ups and all my problems? That's the goal. How do we train for that goal? Well, here's where the analogy of training for a race or training for a play breaks down in the Christian world. In in the example of Christy and Emma and Elizabeth doing rehearsals for a play, basically it's a function of the more training that they put in and the more practice they put in, the better they will be but that doesn't quite work in the Christian life because there's a problem with me and with you. It's called sin. And as much as I train and try and be like Jesus, I can't do it without his help. Neither can you. And so the the, the analogy might be more like a sailboat. Like you're in a sailboat, you have no motor and you have no paddle, no oars. And if you don't have wind, you're not going anywhere, right? The Christian life is like that. We need The wind of the Spirit to blow us. So, how do we train if we're dependent on the Spirit? Well, thankfully, there's things we can do that when the Spirit moves, we catch the wind, right? So, if we continue with this analogy of of sailing and and, and spiritual training, uh, we might study nautical charts, like if we're in a sailboat, right? And maybe that's like Bible study, so that we're prepared, we know the scriptures, we know when the God moves. Um, that we are uh, equipped to do that. We can slow down and observe what's going on all around us. If you're in a sailboat and you just stare at the, the bottom of the boat all the time, you don't know when the weather's changing, you don't know when to be prepared, how the clouds are moving. So that might be like silence and solitude, where we take time from the rat race, we set it aside, and we actually pay attention to what God is doing in our life. Last week we talked about fasting as a way to train our bodies to depend on Jesus in a world that encourages us to depend on our own comfort and our own power. And this evening, we're going to focus on training through the discipline of simplicity. We'll consider the life of the Apostle Paul, who learned to be content in any circumstance, and we'll see if we might learn a better way than we've been living currently. Would you stand with me as we read Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 14. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all people. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence in anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I had any need or want. I've learned how to be content with whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. Lord, this sounds like supernatural um, when we actually play out these words in our own lives, and circumstance. And yet, I desire what Paul has found to truly be content in any circumstance. And he claims, and so we claim, that you make that possible, that all things are possible with you. Would you show us how to train for this, how to receive this good news? Amen. You may be seated. So, before diving into this text, it's important to point out a little detail about Paul's life. Like, when he's writing this, he's in prison. And he's not in prison for doing something horrible. Like, he's not in prison for a just reason. He didn't kill anyone. He didn't steal anything. He's in prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus. And while Paul is a prisoner, he's able to write, I have learned to be content with whatever circumstance I'm in. Contentment. Contentment. In Paul's world during the first century, the Greek word autarkis, which we translate as content or contentment, had a deeply ingrained meaning. Stoic philosophers taught that being content meant to be self-sufficient, to need nothing, and in extreme cases, to need no one. You can see the residue of that type of thinking in the american dream it's the fallacy that you can become anything you want if you just work hard enough anything is possible for for you if you are truly self-sufficient and who is the great american hero well of course it's the person who goes from rags to riches that's the story we love to tell in america it's the few who achieve a certain level of power and a certain standard of material possessions. And the lower the starting point and the higher the material achievement, the greater the narrative. We love to tell that story in our culture. It doesn't matter if you're, you can be an American hero. Uh, you don't need good character. You don't need to treat people well or to be honest or have compassion. The important thing is to tell the narrative that if you work hard enough, and get enough stuff, you can feel like you've made it here. So for the Stoic and the Cynic, contentment looks like abandoning attachments to the material world. And to the American dream, contentment looks like the self-made individual. But Paul is not talking about how he learned to be self-sufficient. He's not talking about how he learned to be self-made. After all, he's literally in prison for preaching about the need to be dependent on somebody else and his name's Jesus. That's his whole message. So Paul, I'm reading this, I'm like, tell me your secret. I've got to know how you can be content in prison because I find myself all sorts of state of discontentment and I've got it pretty well. So I believe that Paul gives us four training exercises that can help us simplify and open ourselves to the grace of Jesus, which allows us to be content, okay? Uh, The first training exercise is found in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The exercise is to express our joy in the Lord and what he's done. You know, oftentimes we struggle with wanting more things in life to fill a void Caused by some insecurity or because we're comparing ourselves to other people. Rejoicing is a simple training exercise that helps us get our eyes off of ourselves and off of comparing other people and that puts them on the Lord, who is the the provider of every good thing. And we can rejoice that Jesus in Scripture is the one described as humble and gentle and wise and good and powerful and intelligent. He's compassionate and he's courageous and we can rejoice that he is our king because in a world of leaders that often leave us wanting and that's a nice way of saying that we have a king who is better than we could have ever asked for you couldn't invent a king like this so we can rejoice in who Jesus is and we can rejoice in what he has done the greatest gifts in life are gifts from Jesus The world would have us desire new things all the time, more often, and in greater quantity. But when we pause and reflect on the gifts that Jesus gives us, it puts things into perspective. Like, maybe I don't need all that stuff. I've got the the good, free things that the Lord has given me. Like, have you noticed the sunrises lately? They've been absolutely spectacular. And maybe you're not a morning person, but... You've seen the sunset. I'd probably been in bed by then. But anyway, on either end of the spectrum, the sky's been pretty great lately, and I love that. On Friday, I got to go on a run with my bride. Kids are all in school. Peace out. And we got to go on a run, and it was really fun. And then we came home all sweaty, and we gardened, and we pulled weeds. And I was actually, actually thankful that I have a garden that I can pull weeds even out of. I have a little piece of earth that I get to till, There's something very human about that. Our first vocation in Genesis 2 is to steward the land. You know, there's just the simple pleasures of life. What good gifts might you thank Jesus for genuinely from your heart? How might thanksgiving for what Jesus has given you help temper the desires that sometimes rises up in you to acquire more and more and more? The second training exercise that I see is in verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all of our knowledge and understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. We live in a world, I don't have to tell you this, but Maybe I'll just make it explicit. We live in a world where our very economic structures are based on fear and anxiety. Like ad campaign, uh, ad executives hire psychologists and sociologists to figure out what you're most worried about, where you and I are most insecure. And they've learned how to exploit us to their advantage. Like that's no secret. It's not like they need to create any feelings of inadequacy in me, or fear, or not having enough, or anxiety about not fitting in. We get all of those things free of charge, don't we? It's like when we're born into the world, someone hands us this invisible gift bag and says, oh, there you go, check it out. Oh, there's some shame in there. How did I get that? I'm only four days old. And there's some fear and anxiety and scarcity and all of this crap that we're just gifted. Yay, sin." And that sure helps people when they're trying to sell clothes to make you feel like, if I don't look like the model in those clothes, I might be missing out. I may not fit in. I might not really be experiencing life. If you don't have the newer car, I mean, what might happen to your old one? You might have to fix it. It might break. Who wants that hassle? My grandfather once got a new car. I said. Yeah, why'd you get a new car? He goes, the old one was dirty. He was just joking, but like, that's kind of the mentality, like, you get over, like, there's this magic mile, like, we can't fix our cars anymore, because, I don't know, that's so hard, but, you know, so we've got to have the new stuff, and, 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 plus, there's that narrative of, well, you deserve it, you work so hard. Our electronics seem to be designed with, like, planned obsolescence, right, like, every three years, my phone feels like a tin can with a string. Just three years ago, it was, like, the best thing on the block, like, what, what's happening here? How are we to be content in a world with these conflicting messages? The scriptures encourage us to trust Jesus, to be generous with our things, to have margin so we can be generous with our finances, but the world is saying, wait, 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 before you give that money away, before you help somebody else, you you need this new thing. Because, <laughs> you know, it's just time. You've got to have it. There's immense pressure. And I know we have our students with us and I don't know all the stuff that you guys are pressured about, but I mean, kids experience this at school all the time. Fashions change and trends pop up so fast. I seriously saw a kid pegging their pants the other day. I was like, man, that's eighth grade for me. It's coming back. I should just keep all our old clothes. But there's this pressure to fit in and to have all the stuff, to have the right phone, to have the right this and that, have the right brands, Apparently, like, if you have, like, a Nike shirt and Adidas shoes, you're not, you know, like, you might get talked to about that. You can't match, can't mix and match brands. And adults, we don't grow out of it either, right? Like, maybe you grew up in a very um, materially insecure household, right? And now you have some means. You have, a, you have a job. And you never want to feel insecure again about material things. So you might buffer and create have excess more than you need to protect yourself. And, 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 and there's compassion for that. But you know that that's a psychological, like, we need to get healed from that. Right? Or maybe you're living in the shadow of a very successful, or at least very vocal parent or set of parents and even as an adult, you feel pressure to have certain things a certain way or have a certain standard of living so that your parents approve of you. And it may never even be explicitly said, but you know that look. You know. Things are never just things, things are never just things. They are connected to us. We don't just buy things. Based on a cost-benefit analysis, there are emotions tied up to our buying. Retail therapy is a saying because it's real. Most of the time, we consume things and buy things for the feeling we think they will give us or the life they think we think they will give us more than what it actually gives us. But the discipline of simplicity, the letting go of the non-essential can help free us from captivity to the lie that we can have salvation through material things. Paul encourages us not to let go of anxiety by pretending that it doesn't exist, but by placing it, by naming it, by getting real with it and saying, God, I'm putting it in your hands. That's the trick. Christianity is not a religion, it's not a movement about pretending like things are okay. It's not about plastic smiles. It is about actually getting more real. Sometimes it gets harder before it gets better. We have to identify, why do I live this way? Why do I want so much? What is this drive in me? Name that, then put that in God's hands and say, Lord, I need your help because I'm anxious about this or I'm fearful about that or I'm greedy about that. We have to say those things and confess them and then God can do something with them. I can't tell you how many times I've had something in my mind, and I'm convinced it's what I need, and I'm a researcher, so like, oh, I definitely need new skis. This, this is the year, and you know, I'll research all the stuff, and oh my, I, I'm like sick. I'm sick about it. Like, I do this with cars too. Like, I just, I know every, I know every horsepower of like every SUV out there. You know, I just tell you everything, because I, you know, when I get distracted, it's what I do. So, I, you know, I just need new skis, a better car, a new drill, a newer phone, uh, research, I compare, I convince myself, but unless I really need it, the Lord has a way of giving me peace about what I have. And, and, and that he does that when I, the few times I succeed in going to him in prayer, when I'm anxious. So, the peace of Jesus has this way of penetrating our deep insecurities, those base level fears, those wounds that we try and cover over through consumption and acquisition. But abundant life in Christ is a life of freedom. It's not a life of hoarding. It's a life where we're not controlled by our pain, and it's a life where we're not shackled by our stuff. That's the kind of life I want. And I'm not there yet, but I see the roadmap that Paul's laying out, and I'm thinking, I can do these training things, I can pray. I can rejoice. Those are things I can pick my way at doing. Now, this isn't a sermon on decluttering, uh, but that would be one of the ways that you might trust Christ. This isn't a Mary Kondo seminar of organizing. She's got some opinions, but man, she really lost me when she said only 30 books. Like, no, 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 that is of the devil. But yeah, you know, you consider the stuff lying around in your garage. I know some of you are in the, uh, in the phase of downsizing, right? Your kids are gone, and you're going through, like, what do I need? I, I'm in the, in the phase of my parents just kicked all the stuff out of their attic, and now it's in mine. And so I've got all these high school wrestling trophies and medals. And uh, so, of course, the kids were looking, I'm like, I think I'm going to show the kids all my stuff so they've seen it. And then I'm gonna get rid of it. Like, why do I need this stuff? What are these attachments? Do I and my Uncle Rico really caring back? My high school wrestling days, I was such a if I could just go back out of one state every year. No, I like. Oh. Napoleon Dynamite, anybody? Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> There's a resistance to getting rid of something that you haven't worn or used or looked at in a few years. And and when you feel that resistance, that is a perfect opportunity to say, hey, Jesus, what is this about? What is this about? What is going on in me that I feel resistance about getting rid of a cracked wrestling trophy that I haven't looked at in like 20 years? I actually don't have any resistance with that one, but... uh So we're encouraged to rejoice in Jesus, the giver of all good things. We're encouraged to train in the art of prayer, our giving of our anxieties over to Jesus, right? And third, Paul encourages us to discern the way of Jesus in the world. So this is such an important part of our training as disciples. I mentioned that for the the Stoics and the Cynics, contentment was found in self-sufficiency. That in itself, by the way, is anti-Jesus, I know you're thinking, wait, wait, I thought Jesus was American. Self, no, <laughs> I know that, I know letters, I know you weren't thinking that, but self sufficiency in and of itself as the goal of life is anti Jesus. We are made to be dependent on Jesus who's all sufficient. Amen? Okay. Uh, but I didn't tell you how these philosophers went about training their disciples. And so listen to the way of contentment as described by, by one philosopher. Epictetus, in his discourses, um, actually written by his pupil, he didn't write his own teachings down like many philosophers, but his pupil wrote it down in the discourses, and this is how he teaches to become content in life. Begin with a cup or a household utensil. If it breaks, say, I don't care. Go on to a horse or a pet dog. This is where it really gets grim. If anything happens to it, say, I don't care. Go on to yourself, and if you are hurt or injured in any way, say, I don't care. For the Stoic, contentment was found in detaching oneself from feelings and emotions of the heart. For the Cynic, this played out oftentimes in the abandonment of any physical things except for the very necessities of life. And you see a bit of this in Star Wars, don't we, kids? And nerds? <laughs> the Jedi aren't supposed to have romantic relationships. They're supposed to be dispassionate, not own personal property, and the theory is that they'll be able to be more objective about their goal of Jedi-ing. Right? But that never works. That never works because we are made in God's image, and God made us with physical bodies in a physical world with deep, wild passions and desires. Now, do those passions and desires get us in trouble when they get warped and out of control? They absolutely do. They're hard to harness, aren't they? But that doesn't mean we should deny them. That would be to truncate our humanness. The answer is to submit them to the Lord. Notice that Paul doesn't just find contentment in nothingness. He also finds contentment in abundance and prosperity. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, uh, honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything is worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The most common ways that the church has tended to get this wrong, this engagement with the world, is on the one hand by avoiding the world altogether. You don't watch movies. You don't listen to secular music. You don't pay attention to fashion or politics. And thus, basically what you're doing is you're removing any engagement with the world that, we can, that we're sent to reach. So that's, that's one wrong way to do it. The other wrong way to do it is when we so look like everybody else We've lost our kind of saltiness as the church. We don't, we don't look any different. We just we just adopted what everything that the culture is doing and said, hey, this is great. And Paul presents a third way. He calls us to deeply consider the world. And if there's good to be found, highlight it. If there's beauty in a piece of art, a landscape, a film, or a song, give it its due recognition. If there's truth spoken from a politician or a social commentator or an author of fiction or nonfiction, say a yes and amen. Truth is truth is truth. Beauty is beauty is beauty. It's all, anything good is from the Lord, even if it came from the mouth of someone who doesn't know the Lord. Simplicity is not an escape from the world and it's not a wholesale adoption of it. Simplicity in Christ involves a discerning look at the world. Everything out there has the potential to influence us and almost nothing is entirely evil and almost nothing is entirely good. And so a discerning reflection on the world will take into account my and your personal weakness and the object that we're considering, the song, the music, the person, the scene, whatever it is. So take Pinterest, for example. To me, Pinterest is a tool. And so like when we were doing a new bathroom in our house recently, we looked at Pinterest, and Pinterest helped me to narrow down what was possible in our space and gave us some good ideas, and it was great. So I got a nice bathroom out of it. Yay, Pinterest. But I know for some, Pinterest can be a source of anxiety, for some, it's impossible not to compare what other people are doing for their, their new fence. Oh, darn, my fence isn't as good as that one. Or for their kid's 10th birthday party, right? Like, oh, I, they, they did homemade everything and they made this cool thing. And, and so now we don't match up. And so, so some people just need to like get off Pinterest because it's not good for us, right? Um, if you're struggling with greed and wanting a new bike that you know you don't need, Like the worst thing to do after work every day is to go to the bike shop and look at all the new bikes. Like that's just like not good for your soul. We have to be discerning. We have to take into consideration our weakness with the power of what the world has to offer, right? It takes thinking and that's a a training thing we can do. Fourth, the fourth training exercise that Paul encourages us to consider is to give and receive generously. If we are training to learn how to become more fully human and to bring glory to God, and if we're created to be dependent on Jesus and to love him more fully, then we have to learn how to be generous and how to receive help. It is gonna be impossible for us to receive things from Jesus if we can't even do it from each other because we're too prideful or whatever. Paul was in prison, and the church in Philippi took up a special offering to help him. And in those days, prisoners in the Roman world, they didn't like get three squares a day and new clothing and things like that. Like your family and friends had to bring food to you and make sure that your shoes, when they're worn out, you got new shoes and clothes and things like that. And so the Philippian church sends this man, Epaphroditus, to deliver a gift, a collection from the church to help him out. And Paul was thankful for the gift and he received it graciously, but he makes the point Like, thank you for the gift, but by the way, you know, I'd learned to live contented, whether I had a lot or whether I didn't have a lot. And by pointing that out, like, when you read it in English, it kind of sounds like, well, that's kind of a jerky thing to say. Like, couldn't you have just said thank you? But Paul, see, in the ancient world, friendship isn't like you and I know it. Friendship was always a give and take, reciprocity. Friendship like we know it, like compassionate, like I'll do anything for you kind of friendship that didn't really exist in the Roman world. And so if someone gave you a gift, you would be expected to be in their debt until you gave them a gift. And what Paul is saying, thank you, Epaphroditus. Thank you, Church in Philippi. But I actually was quite content. Your gift tells me more than just that you're kind or that I now have things. My rejoicing in the gift is that you thought of me and that you cared for me. It's more than the thing. That's what gift-giving and receiving can do to help train us for Christ. We don't worship Jesus just because he gives us stuff. And he doesn't receive our worship just because we do stuff. He loves you whether or not you give him a lot or a little. You can't change that. And when we learn to receive his good gifts and and when we receive from each other, it, it breaks that pride down and helps us to look and receive the person, not just the thing that they're giving. What is the secret to Paul's contentment? It isn't detaching oneself from material things or from feelings like the Stoics. It isn't by indulging in consumption and passions like the American dream. Paul's source of contentment is trust in Jesus. And he's trained himself in the school of rejoicing and thanksgiving, in the school of prayer and dependence, in the school of discerning the way of Jesus in the world, in the school of generous giving and receiving from others. Jesus makes it possible to be content with much or with little because of the fact that our ultimate destiny, along with our lives right now, are in his very good hands. Would you pray with me? Lord, I have scarcely felt as much of a part of the congregation um, being preached to as as I am right now. Um, This materialism, this attachment and detachment stuff, trusting you more than our things, gets to the heart of most of our Western human insecurities and fears, the definitions we've used to define who we are and who we aren't is going to take some major spiritual surgery to help us, Lord. And I'm thankful that you're tenacious and that you never give up. And I pray that you would pour out your grace on us to take a step forward in in the invitation to practice these these four ways of training um, to receive you more, to trust you more, toward contentment. Lord, forgive us for our Um, attachments that become idols and stand in the way of receiving you. And help us, Lord, to trust you more fully than before. Amen.